forward slash subscribe. And wherever you're listening, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or maybe via the Community Radio app. It's great to have your company this morning. Stay tuned. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. And I am Inez, I'm in the studio today and I'm joined by Leela and Ayan. Good morning. Good morning, Inez and Ayan. Thank you, Ayan, for um, panelling today. Absolutely. Um, absolute joy to have them in the studio. And they're an absolute lightsaber. Um, did I say lightsaber? <laughs> lightsaber. <laughs> um, absolute lifesaver. And how are you feeling today, Lila? Um, you know, I'm pretty good this week. I'm not feeling any kind of ailment, surprisingly. Yes. Um, which is a good day for me, a bit flat, but how are you going today, Inez? I feel quite busy. I have a conference on and lots of things to do, but, you know, treading above water. Very glad to be here today. Well, I'm glad to see you. Shall we do a rundown? <clears throat> and then get into the news headlines. Absolutely, we should. So first off, we will hear a replay of the latest Woman on the Line show, hosted by Zen Naya, was with, who was a chat with Dominia Gia, who's a sex worker and artist in, based in Honolulu. And sec, Jen and Gia speak about Gia's zine Be Easy Save Volume 2, which features around 20 contributors contributors from all facets of sex worker industry, including strippers, dancers, cam models, sugar babies, dominatrix, and more. And you can listen to the rest of the episode on 3CR Woman on the Line and catch it every Monday, 8.30 to 9 on 3CR. I'll definitely be tuning in to hear the rest of that after today. Uh, and then next up, we're going to have a chat with Irvi Majanma. Uh, Irvi is a comedian and actor who moved to from India to Australia at the age of six. Irvi has always struggled, juggled two worlds, living up to her parents' expectations whilst trying to appear cool at all times. Balancing her dark wit and sarcasm with a contagious excitability, Irvi's comedy values quality and connectedness above all. And today we're going to be chatting about Footscray Laughs program and her journey as a comedian. And then we'll hear a, another replay, which is an expert of 3CR's Radical Australia show, with the guest appearance from Hallie Millwood, who during the pandemic organised with others in the retail and fast food industry to get better health protections for workers, and a campaign was begun with RAFU, which is the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And then we are joined by Matt Kunkel, who it's a follow-up from uh, the interview that we did a few weeks ago, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, to talk about the centre's latest report, Insecure by Design, which outlines Australia's migration system and the job market experience and reveals the toll of visa discrimination on migrant workers and reiterates the indisputable link between temporary visa status and workplace exploitation. 
And finally, we are joined by John B. Lawrence SC, a Darwin barrister. He was a Crown Prosecutor in Darwin and later Solicitor in charge of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service. He is a past president of the Northern Bar Association and of the Criminal Lawyers Association of the Northern Territory. He represented one of the Dondale youth detainees during the Royal Commission and joins us today to speak about his article in Arena, What the Meaning of Dondale Is. And just a warning, this interview contains distressing content about youth who are criminalised and detained, so feel free to skip the interview at the end of our show today. Uh, and if you need any extra support, please call Lifeline on 131114 or 13YARN for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander-specific support. Amazing. So, yeah, as usual, we have a huge show for everybody. And now we'll be back with some news headlines. North Preston Lifesaving Club is a new creative space, gallery and studios run for and by queer artists with disability. They're currently taking applications for studios and membership with priority given to disabled, queer and BIPOC communities. They'll be running workshops, holding community events and showcasing works by local and interstate artists. The North Preston Lifesaving Club crew are seeking assistance in getting up and running and they need your help to get three-phase power to run equipment including a kiln to find out more and to show your support for independent creatives please visit their facebook page north preston lifesaving club north preston lifesaving club is a 3cr supporter these are the news headlines for thursday the 23rd of march a battle of community groups continue to battle with vic forest over illegal logging in central highlands and gippsland with Vic Forest appealing past decisions that successfully halted logging since November last year. Vic Forest will appeal the decisions in a Melbourne court today, and community groups include King Lake Friends of the Forest, Environment East Gippsland and Gippsland Environment Group will cross-appeal in a continued fight to stop logging in areas home to endangered species. In other news... Anti-trans groups are continuing a failed week of protests in Hobart, in Hobart and Canberra this week after clashing with hundreds of pro-trans activists who rallied in favour of transgender rights in Melbourne on Saturday. Saturday's protest in Melbourne, which saw an anti-trans speaker drowned out by the pro-trans supporters, was also overwhelmed by a group of neo-Nazis who marched through the city performing Nazi salutes in support of the anti-trans group. Victoria Police have unsurprisingly received criticism from pro-trans activists this week, with reports and photos showing police pepper-spraying trans people and their supporters on Saturday, who were standing up to the neo-Nazis. In related news, following the rally on Saturday, the state government has this week vowed to bring in legislation to ban the Nazi salute in Victoria, Experts on extremism in Victoria say the success of banning the salute will depend on the willingness to prosecute, with some warning that a focus on banning specific gestures does not tackle underlying drivers of far-right extremism. Also in the headlines this week, Australia has issued new sanctions on Iran over human rights abuses and supplying drones to Russia. 
The sanctions target the morality police involved in the death of Masa Amini, whose death in custody six months ago sparked a women-led protest movement in Iran and solidarity protests around the world. The sanctions also target senior law enforcement and military and political figures involved in the supply of drones to Russia amid its invasion of Ukraine. Sanctions include financial sanctions and travel bans on individuals and entities who are, quote, responsible for egregious human rights abuses and violations in Iran. And finally, in news headlines, new data shows a surge in numbers of people sleeping rough and experiencing homelessness in Australia, with women and children and First Nations people bearing the brunt of the housing crisis. Census data shows nearly 123,000 people were without a home on census night in 2021, around 6,000 more than at the previous count in 2016. Along with this data, a new report released yesterday from the Australian Council of Social Services shows single parents, migrants, those without jobs and people with a disability are more prone to living in poverty. The Greens say $5 billion a year is needed for social and affordable housing and to support a rent freeze. But advocates point to an ongoing inaction and repeated failures of parliamentary bills proposing rent caps. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 23rd of March. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Hi, I'm Munira from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. In 2003, the American peace activist Rachel Corey was killed for opposing the demolition of Palestinian homes in the Gaza Strip. Join Free Palestine Melbourne and Students for Palestine Victoria for a public screening of Rachel, a film about her murder and its subsequent cover-up. Come and support the struggle for a free Palestine, Thursday the 23rd of March, 6.30pm at the Old Arts Lecture Theatre, University of Melbourne. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. And now we'll hear a quick song by Becca Hatch, which is Safety. I don't need this dress I don't need you calling my line I don't need this press Hey, I don't need you up in my vibe But I just need you here I fall back
just heard the song Safety Net by, oh, sorry, Safety by Becca Hatch. And now we're going to go to an excerpt of the latest episode of 3CR's Women on the Line show, hosted by Zenya. And Zen will be chatting with Domina Gia, a sex worker and artist based in Honolulu, Oahu, Hawaii. Zen and Gia speak about Gia's zine, Be Easy, Stay Safe, Volume 2, which features around 20 contributors from all facets of the sex worker industry, including strippers, dancers, cam models, sugar babies, dominatrixes, and more. You can listen to the rest of the episode here and find Gia's work on Instagram at gingivitis at gingivitis underscore. And remember, you can catch the Women on the Line show every Monday from 8.30 to 9am on 3CR. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. They and them pronouns. Um, I'm Hi, my name is Gia. I use they and them pronouns. Um, I'm calling in from Honolulu, Hawaii, specifically the island of Oahu. Um, and yeah, but I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in other parts of the U.S., uh, more specifically New York City, but now I'm based in Honolulu. Great. It's great to have you on uh, Women on the Line. So you recently released your zine, Be Easy, Stay Safe, Volume 2, uh, which makes me actually really curious about Volume 1. Can you tell us about uh, these series of zines? Sure. So... Um, I think it was 2018, I released a zine called Be Easy, Stay Safe, uh, Volume 1, with the intention of knowing that there would be multiple volumes. And the first volume was around the time that Festa Sosta came out, or was was about to be administered, or I don't know the correct usage of the word, but it it was about to be placed, um, and it was about to affect a bunch of sex workers, and there was a lot of information online that was being wiped off the internet, like off of Craigslist, off of like even resources were being wiped off the internet, which I thought was really um, unfair and really um, unsafe for a lot of sex workers. So I preserved as much as I could and hand wrote a bunch of these phone numbers, addresses, and names of organizations onto pieces of paper. I collaged it. I included condoms. Um, Mostly it was just like a resource pamphlet, but it was still in like a zine format. So, And the name Be Easy, Stay Safe comes from when I first started working. I would have a friend who passed away um, who would always tell me to be easy, and it was his way of saying, like, take care. Um, And then, of course, the Stay Safe component is mostly about the contents of the first volume were ways that sex workers could stay safe. And I understand you know, the industry of sex work is not always super safe. So, um, and maybe the the idea of safe spaces doesn't actually really exist, but uh, it was my way of telling sex workers or uh, encouraging sex workers to stay safe as possible by like reading the scene and preserving online resources. So 
Um, that's where the title comes from. And then uh, the first volume was, it was really like bare bones. <laughs> I like went to this anarchist like printmaking workshop that later I never would work with again because I think the person may have been a neo-Nazi. <laughs> and um, oh uh, Anyway, yeah, it was, I, I like, when I picked up all the zines, I realized I saw, looked at his tattoos a little closer and I was like, oh my gosh, I think I just worked with a neo-Nazi. But um, anyway, I, I, uh, I don't have any copies of the first zine anymore, and I'm I'm very happy with this next uh, this current volume because it's a little bit more collaborative. And although it doesn't have resources on how to stay safe, I did include an interview where I asked two folks on how they stay safe. Yeah, um, I'm very uh, interested in you know preserving online resources in the context of sex workers accessing yeah resources online. Mm-hmm. Um, because the internet is such a like a fleeting, ever changing space. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it about like creating a zine in terms of like the distribution of yeah these resources that you were finding online? Did you find that you were able to reach uh, a lot of sex workers, or yeah, what was your kind of goal in distributing the zine? Yeah, so at the time I was still not really like I didn't really have a sex working community I was very isolated sometimes the sex work industry can be very siloed and especially if you're an independent worker and you don't work like out of a house or something like you you spend a lot of time alone and just with the individual clients so I part of making the first zine was uh, my uh, my effort to reach out to community members and get to know other community members but selfishly the first zine was really catered to resources that were helpful to me like I think I included um, an organization from New York called Womankind that I believe like helps or, or like caters towards Asian sex workers or Asian people um, and you know not everybody who's a sex worker is Asian so it's not super relevant to everyone but I did try to include other just general resources that were helpful for me. And there were all things that I was personally vetting. Um, and I would show up to uh, events specifically at this space called uh, New Women's Space in in Brooklyn, New York, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, I and they were ho- they were hosting some like events that were um, for sex workers, but wasn't explicitly said so. You just kind of had to know. Maybe they put like a, a red umbrella on the flyer or something, or there was some sort of word on there that you knew like, oh, this is for sex workers. So I would show up to those events and I would pass out the zines because, again, the zine was very like bare bones. It wasn't like something I would charge anybody for, but I, it did take a lot of money to print them. So I was accepting donations, but I would give it, I would give it to, for free to any QT BIPOC person that identified as a sex worker but, like, if they were white, I would be like, can you please donate something? Um, so I um, that that was the only way I was distrib- distributing it. I would just hand it out. And then I was part of a collective of artists called the Disclaimers. And we had a we used to have a gallery inside of um, a venue called Silent Barn in, in Brooklyn, New York. And we used to do a lot of tabling events for art and zines. So they would table my zines. And I don't think they sold very much, but that's okay because I think the events that we were tabling at were catered towards like more like artists and creators and it wasn't really for sex workers. So I did get it out directly to sex workers like by hand and in person. Um, so it was, you know, it got into the hands of the, the correct people, but it wasn't as widely distributed as say the volume two is right now. 
Yeah, and on volume two, I mean, from reading it, there's a lot. You have like around, was it 20 contributors to the zine? I think so, yeah, yeah. 20 and including myself. Mm, and there's a lot of like stories from different kinds of workers in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk more about like engaging with uh, yeah, various workers from all over the industry? Yeah, so I think that there is a story or a, a con- contribution from almost every type of worker, like dancers, dominatrixes, escorts. Um, the only one that I didn't include that I wish I did were phone sex operators, but I think a lot of folks who are like full-time workers often do maybe like night flirt or sex panther and also have phone lines, but they didn't talk about their phone experiences, which is fine. But um, what else am I? Oh, Sugar Babies, I believe, is in there. There's a Sugar Baby in there. They didn't explicitly say that they were, but I know that they are just because I knew them already. Um, And if I'm missing any, I'm sorry, but I, I try to include as many different types of worker, workers as possible. Um, and what initially, I did an open call on my Instagram. I, I um, made a flyer uh, asking any anybody that works in the sex industry or the sex trades to submit their experiences for a chance to be given $150 stipend for their contribution is selected. And I think I got about 50 entries, and I selected... Wow. I was supposed to only select 10 to 15 or 10 to 12, but I there was so good that I selected 18 and then interviewed two people. So there's 20 entries or 20 contributors. It's great that there was so much interest. I mean, just hearing the evolution from volume one to volume two, how many years has it been since between the volumes? So if it's 2023 now, and I think I released the first volume in 2018, and then I, the, to give a little bit of background, too, I got an artist grant in 2019 from the Effing Foundation, um, and that's what allowed me to pay everybody that contributed. Um, but initially, I was going to use that money to do an in-person uh, event for sex workers where I would do uh, live embroidery on people's undergarments, and I was going to interview the two uh, folks that are included in it, which is Yin Q and Ashley Chubby Bunny, um, they were going to do a live panel, but because of COVID, uh, we couldn't do a live event anymore, and I just had to brainstorm, and it took me three years to figure out, like, oh, I should just do a volume two of the zine. I mean, it didn't take me the three years to, like, brainstorm it. I just, you know, COVID really impacted everybody that I did. I just put the entire grant on a hold, and then finally when the grant directors reached out to me, they're like, hey, well, you still have this money sitting here. What do you want to do with it? And I was like, oh, I should do a zine. So um, in 2019, sorry, I got the grant in 2019. I started working on the zine in 2022. Um, So I took a little bit of a break. From 2018 to 2022, there was nothing. And now it's something. So it it took quite a bit. Yeah. But I love hearing how, like, the first one you were saying it was more for you and how, um, Perhaps at that time you're a bit more isolated in your work, and mm-hmm. now in those years, like it sounds like, yeah, you've been able to build a, more of a community, whether that mm-hmm. be online or in person. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit to that experience of yeah, building a community of other sex workers? Yeah, it's it was so. I don't know the word to describe it, but I felt so held every time I would get a submission, and I felt so like seen, or I felt like I. Was 
saying it was more for you and how um, perhaps at that time you were a bit more isolated in your work. And mm-hmm. now in those years, like, it sounds like, yeah, you've been able to build a, more of a community, whether that mm-hmm. be online or in person. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit to that experience of, yeah, building a community of other sex workers? Yeah, it's it was so... I don't know the word to describe it, but I felt so held every time I would get a submission and I felt so like seen or I felt like I was seeing other people in a way like virtually that was very uh, endearing and touching because I personally, like outside of sex work, I, I identify as an artist, specifically a textile and performance artist. And I'm the type of artist that believes that art needs to be made to bring people and communities together and needs to reflect communities. So I think that this, particular volume um, is a huge reflection of the work that I try to achieve as an artist that it, it it's eventually started to translate into my my sex work too that I do it for community and I like to joke like I haven't been a sex worker for the past three years I, I kind of took a break um, but I want to re-enter into the industry and I joke that I'm going to be a sex worker for the people and um, I'm kind of privileged enough right now where I don't need to do it for the money and for survival because I have a full-time job, like a civilian job. But if I were to start working again, I would raise a bunch of money for mutual aid efforts and donate it to all these like sex worker organizations that I would like. And I would like force my clients to basically pay their bills. <laughs> so I, um, I just feel more involved in the community now, not just through art, but like through sex work and uh, it's very much reflected in the zine that there's like this common thread of kind of like pride in what we do as sex workers that um, feels very communal and very safe. have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home we'll drop them in at 3cr and put them in the books and boots bin books and boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional first nations communities and children across the country contact us at books and boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au we love a good book You just heard an excerpt of the latest Woman on the Line episode, which was a chat between Zenya and Domina Gia about Gia's zine, Be Easy, Stay Safe, Volume 2, which features around 20 contributors from all facets of the sex worker industry. You can find Gia's work on Instagram at gingivitis, and you can catch the rest of the episode in the link in our show notes and you can listen to Women on the Line every Monday from 8.30 to 9am on 3CR. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! (laughs) 
You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. with 3CR Breakfast on 855am, covering community and alternative current affairs as we do every morning here on 3CR. If you'd like to support the station in providing community access to the airwaves, please consider becoming a subscriber. Details are at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. And wherever you're listening, 3CR Digital, streaming at 3cr.org.au or maybe via the community radio app. It's great to have your company this morning. Stay tuned. Having moved from India to Australia at the age of six, Irvi has always struggled, juggled two worlds, living up to her parents' expectations, or trying to, while still trying to appear cool at all times. Balancing her dark wit and sarcasm with a contagious excitability, Irvi's comedy values quality and connectedness above all. Today, Irvi joins us to talk about her journey as a comedian and the Footscray Laughs program, a series of comedy shows each happening on one Friday in June, August and November this year. Good morning, Irvi. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Uh, Could you start by telling us a bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm a senior producer at Footscray Community Arts, um, where we um, program uh, a lot of stuff, but um, one of them is Footscray Laughs. Um, which you just mentioned, and I'm also a stand-up comedian and writer as well. Amazing. So I know I have worked with you um, before, and I do happen to know that you have had a few different – I mean, I've written day jobs here, but I'm going to say you've had a few different careers in the past. So have you always wanted to be a comedian, and how do you balance Irvi the professional with Irvi the comedian? A really good question. Um, no, I've never, I never thought I'd do comedy. I didn't even know it was a thing that you could do. Um, and also no one like kind of, I think when I was in high school, I really wanted to be an actor. I was like really desperate to be an actor. Um, but then my parents were like, no, um, you're not doing that. So then I studied and um, became a teacher first. And then I worked in public service. And then I finally moved to Footscray um, about four years ago. Um, but yeah, I started comedy in the same year that I started teaching, which, um, was a really intense year because first year teaching is, um, really a lot as well. Um, but I think it was, uh, straight after a breakup and I was sick of crying. Um, so I was looking for some alternative ways to spend my time. Wow. That sounds like a very intense time. And I can, I mean, as someone that works with children, I can see how that those two, um, jobs might feed into each other or roles yeah. might feed into each other. <laughs> Definitely. There's a lot of comedians um, who used to be teachers, actually. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of comedians who aren't teachers, who are students. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, want to be in the classroom. <laughs> so the lineup for Footscray Laughs so far has been amazing and you've yeah. been programming the shows. I wanted to ask if you have any particular interests when it comes to curating the performers and could you give us a bit of a teaser on what's on the lineup for the next three shows? 
Yeah, definitely. So, um, so Scale Life started uh, when we were thinking about a way to kind of diversify what we offer at Footscray Community Arts. Um, so obviously we do a lot of exhibitions and um, music and dance, but we hadn't really looked at comedy before. Um, so yeah, we decided to have a comedy night which featured acts from our focus communities um, and in that way they represent sort of like the broader Footscray and the multiculturalism that we find in Footscray as well. Um, so yeah, we have really different acts, but also often in comedy, um, it's pretty much, I just wanted to get rid of the tokenism of any lineup. So, um, I sometimes in comedy, you won't see like, if you're a ethnic comic, sometimes you might not see other comics because you're on different lineups, but this one's just like everyone in the same place. Um, and the last one was really great. We had, um, last time we had Jude Pearl and Sashi Ferreira and a whole bunch of other um, comics. And this one coming up on the 16th of June, um, we're super lucky to have Lizzie Hu, um, who else do we have? Well, Lisa are headlining, as well as Aurelia St. Clair as the MC. Um, and every Fritzko last, we also love to give some emerging acts a go of the big stage. So we've got a really exciting act called Re-Rose Roro coming up. Um, and she's just hilarious and has been coming up through the um, open mic scene at the moment. So, yeah, one to look out for. That sounds great. It's really amazing to hear that Footscray and you are providing a space for yeah. artists like this to come together and, yeah, not be tokenised and kind of vibe off each other um, and get yeah. to share space. Yeah, that's really important. Yeah, it's a really great um, atmosphere and it felt like, the last one that we just did sold out um, on March 10th um, and the audience were really diverse, the acts were really diverse. Um, I hate that word, but it's just pretty much um, multicultural and um, able to sort of understand each other's life experiences. So the atmosphere is really um, welcoming and loving as well. Yeah, I'm going to check out some tickets for the next show. Um, yeah. Is it sold out yet? No. <laughs> for my own so personal? <laughs> <laughs> no, the next one's coming up in June, so there's lots of time to... Um, Book, book online. Um, the tickets are up, uh, sorry, the website is up and the ticketing will be up soon. Um, but you can just head to www.footscrayart.com and look up Footscray Laughs and then um, that'll be, the tickets will be there. Yeah, and we'll link them in our show notes as well. Great, so now I want to talk about your comedy career. So yeah. your solo debut, Irvy went to an all-girls school is kicking off for another round next Thursday for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Yeah. Could you tell me a bit about how you developed this show? Like, where did it all start? And I was wondering if you could also share some of your process when developing skits and jokes. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's a great question. So, yeah, I'm doing pretty much this show. It was my first solo show, as you mentioned, um, which I did for 23 nights last comedy festival. Um, and that was a, that was like a super fun. I mean, like I was really scared going into it, but um, it was so much fun and it pretty much sold out most nights. Um, so I wanted to have one more like hurrah in Melbourne. So just for four nights from next Thursday to Sunday, I'll be performing um, every went to an all-girls school. And the idea from it, um, I wanted a gig where you had to read from your childhood diary, um, and it was just really it was so fun. And um, I've got, um, because I used to be this like little emo kid that wrote um, all my feelings all the time, um, I've got so many diaries from when I was from pretty much from grade six upwards um, throughout my life. Um, so one day I was just reading through them, and I think now that there's been enough distance, um, it really makes me laugh. And I think there was just like so many different episodes that I'd forgotten and that were like documented in these diaries. 
Um, so I think, yeah, whenever I tell stories amongst my friends, I feel like I've got, this is like some psycho stuff that I did when I was a kid, um, that I'm like, it was like, it was all just so justified at the time. But now that I look back, I'm like, I probably could have made things less intense for myself. Um, and I also thought that just like girl school environments are really funny in particular, um, so, yeah, I wanted to kind of have a collection of stories from, I guess, growing up. And it's kind of in that coming of age um, genre. Um, and I was also watching that show Pen15. I don't know if you've seen it before. Oh, yeah, that's one of my favourites. It's so good. I've watched pretty much. I became in this, like, wormhole and lockdown. I watched every episode probably four times. <laughs> yeah, me um, too. So I'm like, this is my ode to Pen15. So I love, I love that energy of, like, um, still paying respect to that like how kind of crazy you are as a kid, but um, but then also being able to have that, that lens of age to look back on it as well. Yeah, there's something really beautiful about honouring it and just acknowledging the ridiculousness of it all. Yeah. <laughs> yes, um, and there's a lot of pressures, you know, um, don't make sense, but it's funny what comes out and what you remember. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm also going to check out tickets for that, which we'll also yeah. link in our show notes. Oh, thank you. Um, so on that note, I guess, thinking of, I guess, processing life events and looking yeah. back on things, what kind of potential does comedy hold for you? And has it been something that's kind of helped you get through things when times get tough? And do you have any underlying motives when it comes to practicing comedy? Yeah, I think it's been really good for me. Like, I mean, it's opened up a lot of... When I first started, I never really had... I never entered um, doing open mics with the view to become, like, a professional comedian. Um, so I think everything in that way has been a surprise and, like, I'm grateful for. So, um, yeah, it's been a really great journey. Like, made a lot of great friends through the through the scene. And then also um, doing stand-up, I think I think of it as my bread and butter. So you kind of, it's a great, I mean, mm. it, uh, before that I used to write poetry, which is like a um, hard pivot from stand-up. Uh, I love poetry and I love writing, but um, I was finding that I was, one, going through a breakup and then um, submitting poem, my like sad poems to like journals and then <laughs> waiting for months to hear back. And it just felt like a very isolating process because I didn't know other people writing. Um, that's all changed now, but like I think with comedy, it's a pretty. I try and remember that. Remember to be grateful for this like audience who are there, just listening to what you have to say, which is um, a pretty big privilege. Um, so yeah, stand up led me to writing jobs for TV and acting, and um, just a great community. So I think um, I want to stay focused on, I guess, um, enjoying. I, I think it can also be easy in the like entertainment world to get jaded when you feel like you're not getting opportunities and stuff like that. So. Um, I feel like so far it's been really good, so I don't feel like that, but I try and avoid um, thinking too far in the future and just being grateful for the experiences that I get to do now. Yeah, I think it's really good to stay connected to why you do something yeah. creative and, yeah, you've yeah. reminded us all, I think, of some good things to remember when it comes to that. Definitely. Um, speaking of which, you've actually got a show coming up tonight in Fitzroy and you mentioned you're going to try some new stuff, quote, which yeah. I'm curious about. Um, now, you can either just kind of tell us a bit about the new stuff or yeah. something I really wanted personally was for you to tell us a joke. Um, do you have anything morning appropriate? Yeah, I think I was thinking about which one to do. Um, yeah, so tonight's just a trial for my show um, next week because pretty much there's a big, I won't give any spoilers away, but at the end of the show, um, there's news reports from an actual event that happened um, for, in 2010 that um, to do with high school formals. 
um, that I needed to put a video into. So I'm just kind of trialing a few different things. Um, the joke, the um, yes, yeah, so I'd say the trials tonight, but then yeah, you can um, get tickets to the show just the fortnights next week. Um, but yeah, the joke that I was thinking, I think this is an old. This is probably one of the first jokes that I wrote um, when I started stand up. Um, just bec- and I just feel like it's a classic to like go back to. Um, and my parents have seen it, which is funny. Um, but pretty much, um, I guess I was. I think most of my jokes come out of just like sometimes I'm like, is this even a joke? Or just like literally what just happened to me? Um, it's not. Um, <laughs> doesn't it doesn't stray too far from the truth. Um, but yeah, pretty much. I used to when I was first teaching. Um, I used to go, I moved out of home because I tried to get a job that was like pretty much on the other side of the city to my parents. Um, and then I thought that I could just like move out. And my parents have been super um, like overprotective and like they really wanted me to stay at home for like the rest of my life. Um, so I was like, you know, it was a big moment for me just saying, you know, I'll see you every weekend, but I'm moving out. Um, and in that process, my dad found um, a bag. Uh, he's pretty much got like a bag with, you know, like the trolleys with the wheels on the back. Oh, yeah. Um, you can take yeah, yeah. I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah, so he got some from Aldi, his favourite place. Um, and he, he, I used to have to go back to their house and they'd load this bag up with curries, like probably literally like 20 boxes of different curries. And then I, and because I couldn't drive at that time, I'd have to like wheel it along to the train station and then catch like two trains and a bus with my curry bag. Um, <laughs> like every, every day, every, every weekend back to my house. Um, so I, the joke that I just make is that like, you know, I'm really grateful and stuff, but, um, my non-brown friends don't get that it's kind of, cause all my white friends are like, that's so lucky, like everyone cooks you and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then I'm like, it is really good. I'm like really grateful, but, um, what like ethnic kids will get is like the like control and manipulation and like, um, ethnic parents love. Um, because if I denied, the, like, if I was like, no, I'm not going to take the curries, like, my parents just wouldn't speak to me. And it was just, like, this really, it was, like, not okay to not take the curries. Um, oh. So, yeah, pretty much I just um, hypothesised that, like, it's, like, it, it's fine and I don't, I'm really grateful. But what I just really don't want is, like, um, some racist to come up to me on the train and just be like, hey, you Indian, what's in your bag? Curries? <laughs> Um, and then I have to open up and be like, yes, there's like a whole bag of curries. <laughs> it's a terrifying prospect. <laughs> it kind of, yeah, yeah, it outweighs the, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the privilege of being able yeah. to have a bag of homemade curries. <laughs> I know, I wish I, I actually wish that it was still happening now, but, um. Back in the day, you know, you never um, appreciate things as much as when they're happening. It's true. Now, Evie, I think we're almost out of time. Thank you so much for sharing that little little story. Um, (laughs) I was wondering, is there any last thing that you'd like to leave us with? Anything for the kids out there listening in and thinking, damn, I want to be a cool comedian just like (laughs) Evie? Yeah, I think it's, I feel like it's, Comedy is a great thing to practice because you can pretty much um, create your own work, star in your own work, um, just be, you know, um, self-sufficient. So I think a lot of people get stuck on just giving it their first go, the first go. Um, but that gig will always go pretty well, I think, for most people. Um, it's just like persisting at it after that. Um, but, yeah, we definitely need more women and um more diverse acts in comedy so anyone listening out there that's like a little me or little Layla um, please <laughs> consider joining <laughs> yes do it just get out yeah. there and share your stuff definitely thank you for joining us this morning Irvi have a great day no thanks so much bye
As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing You just heard an interview from comedian and actor Irvi Majumdar, who balances her dark wit and sarcasm with a contagious excitability. Irvi's comedy values quality and connectedness above all. And today, Irvi joined us to talk about the Footscray Laughs program, which is a monthly program running over June, August and November this year and we also chatted about Irvi's personal journey as a comedian. And it was a wonderful interview, lots of good laughs in there and now we will hear a replay of an excerpt of Harry Millward's guest appearance on 3CR's Radical Australia who during the pandemic organised with others in the retail and fast food industry to get better health protections for workers and a campaign was begun with the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. So I, I was really shocked at the, the lack of government uh, response um, during the start. Um, and I s- realised that I needed to protect myself. Previously, just from an influenza um, infection, I had had um, viral meningitis. Uh, and that was possibly the worst thing that ever happened. And could I you, thought, Could you explain to yeah. people... What are the symptoms of viral meningitis? I don't think people understand how serious it is. Oh, it's, um, well, for, at least for me, and I, I don't know that. No, no, everybody would. It, meningitis is a terrible disease. Well, I, for me, uh, like the symptoms mm. were like I was I was sick for weeks with um, the flu. And then my um, my boyfriend at the time, he he was about to, to leave to, to go do something. Like he was, he was taking care of me, but um, like, you know, he couldn't be there all the time. And then just as he was about to leave, about five minutes away, I started to seizure. I was screaming. I couldn't control it. I just was rocking back and forth. So he picked me up. I was um, mostly naked, just in my blankets. He just threw me in the car and took me to the hospital. And um, I remember they put me down on a hospital bed and they said, what's your name? And all I did was scream. I couldn't articulate words. I couldn't look straight at anything everything was going sideways. I could still, I was still very conscious. I could, I could see, I could hear, I I knew exactly what they were saying, but there was, there was a break between uh, my mouth and my brain and it was, and, and everything. Um, And then they wheeled me away, put the gas on my mouth. I thought I was going to die. They was so sure that I was on drugs and my my boyfriend was just like, no, he's just, just something's, crazy. something's yeah. going on 
Um, and so that really put a lot of fear in me. I get my flu shot every year now. <laughs> so how long were you in hospital for? Um, I was only in hospital for one day because, um, I don't know if you've ever been in, um, in the intensive care unit. Hmm. It is a horrible place to be. So I begged them, even though I probably wasn't ready to, to let me home. I, mm. I, I threw up on the way yeah. home several times. Um, well, there's no cure for viral meningitis. No, so they just had to if, if pump got... me full of antivirals oh, and yeah, let me yeah, go. Yeah. And um, I just, I, I don't remember how long I was mm. in recovery, but mm. um, my mum stayed with me. When I woke up, she was there. She, tra- <laughs> she flew from Adelaide to Melbourne in time for me to wake up. And that was... Magical. A, a pretty... Yeah. Extraordinary. Extraordinary thing, yeah. yeah. Um, But yes, so from that that experience, I developed very high anxieties about the idea of this virus that was similar to the flu, but far, far worse, and what that could do to a person. Um, And so I uh, tried to connect with other people who uh, thought the same thing, who were more health conscious. Um, uh, My... um, my partner at the time, he um, gave me a pamphlet on Rafu because I said, oh. On, on, on what? On Rafu. Well, I said well, I was well, going to. No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, let me, let me, no, uh, no, let, no, me no. let me, let me start by saying I said, told him I was about to join the SDA because I needed to join a union and that was the, the union of retail. And he said, no, no, no. What are you doing? Join Rafu. What is Rafu? Rafu is the retail and fast food workers union. Could you just say that slowly? the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Right. And um, uh, I guess I sort of I sort of circled around and uh, talked to other members. I started um, chat groups online because everybody was disconnected. We, we couldn't physically talk. So I was reaching out to other workers. I would say, hey, do you, do you think this? Do you think this? Uh, I want someone from every store who's... Um, who feels this way. So I... Re- what were you trying to organise? I was trying to organise a group to uh, to make demands of, for better health. Uh, so... Health protection. Health protection. So so at course. the time, we, we they couldn't get us uh, PPE. Mm. They didn't give us uh, proper hand sanitizer. They weren't giving us masks, all the things that... Um, that should have and i know that there was a shortage but one would think if there's a shortage of safety equipment you don't just go on with the job when there's a shortage of safety equipment for a miner you don't just push him in anyway uh and so i said um until until this is sort of under control i believe that we should be closing uh, down or closing to the public um and uh i found people from across australia who agreed with that uh, from every state um from from the company i work for and um, we joined together. We worked out a list of demands. We gave that to Rafu. They started a campaign in our in our name um, without necessarily identifying us. Uh, they um, pushed for better health protections, and um, I was at the time very happy to to see when we actually went into lockdown and no longer had to be at work because like or no longer had to be open to the public. Um, because it just didn't feel like um, the the government was taking it seriously. Mm. Um, but 
I felt very uh, supported and the amount of work that Rafwi did with us, um, contacting all times of the day, trying to to um, connect us, trying to give us opportunities to talk to the media. Uh, I talked to Channel 7, I talked to BuzzFeed, um and like uh i was not the only person who was doing this like there were other there were other people this was a this was a group thing um but i think um being a worker if you are a, on a permanent contract you have an automatic advantage you can stand up for yourself you can push back a little without worrying that you're not going to be able to put food on the table. There are a lot of casual workers out there who wanted to say the same things, but could not because they would just stop getting shifts. And it, and it, and it did happen. Not, you know, they didn't say, Oh, you are part of the union. Therefore we're going to stop giving you shifts. They're not that stupid, but it was, we don't have enough shifts. Oh, we don't have enough work. Oh, you know, cutting down on expenses. Um, And so uh, it really takes a lot for someone in that position to stand right. up and... Now, what's union membership like these what days? What was the outcomes of that campaign? Um, it, we didn't get what we fought for, which was uh, actually um, closing the store to the public. This was before the second lockdown. So this was when we were still open to the public. Everyone was coming in, rubbing their hands on every DVD. Mm. I don't know why people were coming in for DVDs. Um, oh, bored. The, I know, but pandemics weren't... Aren't there to be nice pandemics no, are, are bored. horrible yeah but, but the people are bored oh poor them um uh, so the outcomes were there was a lot of coincidental uh us getting ppe us getting uh a lot of a lot of protections and uh, that we hadn't gotten previously it was never attributed to us, um, mm. but uh, the timing was very coincidental. So, so you know, you know, it was all the work that you did. did. I, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. I, if it I, happens if I all the time that people on the grassroots in the grassroots yeah, don't yeah. get acknowledged for the no, work that no. they do, and that's why history is important. Yeah. And that's, that's and that's fine. It's fine. No, no, it's not fine. It's not fine. It has to be, be fine because otherwise, no, I can't keep the smile on my face. No, but it has to be acknowledged. <laughs> yes, it has to yeah. be acknowledged, and that's the mistake we make in this country constantly. Yeah. We think we wake up every day and we think it's a brand new day, no. and that we've got no connection with the past. I, w- I want to go back. To unionisation. Well oh, you don't have to thank Harry. <laughs> I will if I want. Well, you can if you want to, but he doesn't need it. He's not that type of person. Stay out of it. He doesn't have to be stroked. I'm not stroking. Yes, you are. He doesn't have to I'm be I'm commending stroked. him on his work. He should be acknowledged. Well, I would like to thank everybody <laughs> in every union that puts in the hard work there to make... you are. Humble. Uh, Humble. To make this place a, be- a better one... No rights were ever won without a fight. Exactly. And we need to bring that fight every day. Yep. And uh, what's what's it like um, now as far as union membership in, uh, in in the private sector in retail? Um, I, I mean, I don't know the numbers. Uh, I mean, if you're talking co- combined, I mean, the SDA is pretty they, – they often overinflate their numbers, as I understand it. Um, but – and it also depends on where you work. So fast food uh, and supermarkets are a lot more um, unionised than other parts of retail. The Apple stores have finally started uh, negotiating um, with the help of their unions uh, for better conditions. So there is 
a real wake up in inside the community. It just, as cultures are, it, it, it moves slowly and in not, not in the directions you necessarily want it to, or you can't force it. Um, but it is being taken up by a lot of, a lot of staff in a lot of companies and, um, not necessarily the one I work for, but I'm, I'm very happy for them. Do you, what do you feel about the Albanese-led Labor government basically hanging out your union to dry in the current uh, I... legislation that's going through <laughs> Parliament where because you're not a registered trade union, you won't have the same power to negotiate on behalf of your members? Um. I think that my view is that calling um, them continuing to call themselves the Labor government, uh, as in insinuating that they're the um, the party of workers, is a bit of a joke. The the accord, the um, the the things that hold the power that holds people back from being able to um, strike or create. Um, uh, or to <laughs> to to make their demands heard um, is something that holds this country back. We're a backwater in that way, and um, mm. I well, you realise the Chinese don't have the right to strike. Why should we have the right to strike? <laughs> um, <laughs> That's what they say all the time. I, you know? it, yeah, what what the Chinese is. does is is uh, a business for the, the no, Chinese no, no, workers. No. I mean, I yeah. obviously solidarity with all of them, but. Um, no, the joke is that's the joke. Yeah. People say Australian, you know, free country, there's the right to strike. There's really no right to strike. So you've just heard an excerpt of 3CR's Radical Australia, which spoke about Harry Millwood, who organised with others in the pandemic for the re- Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. And now we are joined by Matt Kunkel, who is a CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, to talk about the centre's latest report, Insecure by Design, which outlines Australia's migration system and migrant workers' job market experience and reveals the toll of visa discrimination on migrant workers and reiterates there is an indisputable link between temporary visa status and workplace exploitation. Thanks for joining us here again, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Amazing. Well, I know that the report, um, you know, that was based on a survey of over a 1,000 migrant workers and 65 in-depth interviews found many statistics, but one thing that was really alarming was half of all respondents reported feeling unsafe at work and as many as 18% always feeling unsafe at work. Could you tell us more about, you know, how the survey was conducted and also if anything really, really stood out to you in the report? Because I know that there's very similar trends from previous reports that you've done too. Yeah, um, so... We put out an online survey, uh, and it was uh, in English and Arabic, and we found uh, some pretty kind of, in some ways, startling outcomes, and in other ways, things that we really did expect to see based on the the types of cases that come through the Migrant Workers Centre. But one of the big things that you you mentioned there at the top is that, that number about one in five people feeling always unsafe at work, which is a pretty shocking thing, and there's times that I'm sure all of us have probably felt um, something's been not quite right or unsafe at work, but to feel that way every single day is a pretty shocking statistic. And we found that those people who were on temporary visas 
uh, reported feeling always unsafe at about double the rate that people who had permanent visas um, uh, reported. So, you know, showing a real link there between temporary forms of visas and some really difficult challenges that um, migrant workers are facing in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the main theme throughout the report is, you know, how a dual job market essentially has been created through visa discrimination. And, you know, the Australians, the two-step migration strategy. So there's, you know, migrant workers are caught in this uh, in this cycle pretty much between, you know, jobs and visas. So you need a permanent visa to get a decent job and you need a decent job from which you can earn migration points <laughs> to get a permanent visa. It feels like it's genuinely never-ending. Um, could you tell us more about why this dual job market is so dangerous for migrant workers? Yeah, well, I mean, it's not just dangerous, but it really is holding people back from living their best and full lives. So uh, many people, many companies out there, you know, you fill in your application for a, for a job and one of the boxes employers are making you tick is, do you have permanent residency? And it's really, it's the wrong question um, from a work rights point of view because if you've got a temporary visa with work rights, there's nothing really stopping you from applying for pretty much any job in the country. What's holding us back, though, is that there's a number of really difficult restrictions that some people on temporary visas face. So the 40-hour restriction, 40-hour uh, fortnight restriction for international students precludes a lot of them from working full-time hours. Working holiday visa makers can only work for one employer for six months, for example. Uh, and there's also just the inbuilt racism into the market that... Um, people don't want to employ someone who they don't think is going to be around for very long. So that's one of the other findings or recommendations that comes out of this report is that we want the government to change the discrimination laws to ensure that it's against the law to discriminate on the basis of visa status, which at the moment it's not. Uh, it's not a protected class like race, gender or religion or um, you know disability status is. Okay. Um, can you uh, talk to us a little bit more about if something is um, if migrant workers do become like a protected class? What did, what would that actually mean for their protections? Well, what that would mean is that if there were employers who were deploying discriminatory hiring practices, um, then people would be uh, able to raise a case in the Equal Opportunity Commission. Um, and that would hopefully amend employer behaviour. It would also provide another avenue for us to raise matters of discrimination in the workplace where um, the case around race is not necessarily a strong one. So um, it might be that we, we, we take in a number of different uh, people from, from kind of European countries as well, uh, and we, and a fair few of those come through the Migrant Workers Centre with cases um, of underpayment and things like that, where they're telling us that they're being paid less than um, they're being paid less than Australian workers, and that you know that goes for Kiwis too, but not just um, you know any you know one particular type of Kiwi, but um, from all over the place. So that that would help in that in that respect um but predominantly what we're trying to avoid is this two-step job market where um people are being locked out of permanent and secure employment because of their temporary visa yep absolutely and i 
I've also noticed that, you know, migrant workers, as you've mentioned before, has like, have experienced, um, I think various obstacles to even look for a job in Australia. Um, it's difficult enough to, to come here and, you know, rebuild your entire life. Um, and then trying to look for a job, it's, you know, definitely not easy to prove that you have the skills from where their qualifications um, are from, like, accredited universities and from overseas. And, you know, there are so many various processes and skills recognition across occupations and also there's no centralized database or there's no federal regulator from which to collect information or guide so it feels like it's almost like you know you spend so much time and energy and you your work you know in your country of origin getting these qualifications only for it to come here and then not be recognized and then on top of that you know you're putting your hand, the hands of your employment into professional migration services who have absolutely no industry-specific expertise. So I guess, could you talk to us about like what that actually means, to put your, your life <laughs> and your employment on the line with people who don't have the knowledge of your industry? Yeah, look, there's, there's so much to unpick in that. Um, I mean, first of all, I preface this with saying that there's no such thing as unskilled work. But to me, it seems very unusual to have, you know, engineers out there pushing lawnmowers or doctors driving cabs. Um, it, you know, it, it's bad for them, for the workers themselves, but it's also really bad for the country because it means that the skills and experience that those people want to, um, you know, use and, and, and benefit our society and our communities, are, are, they're being held back, and that's no good. Um, to the point about migration agents and education agents, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are some good ones out there, but the cases that, that come to us are pretty shocking. You know, gouging prices, um, not delivering on promises or not delivering on things that they've said. Uh, in many cases, they're, they're hooked in with, you know, employment scams, if you will, um, and there's just no regulation or compliance on them. Um, but our report kind of shows that nearly all people use some form of professional service uh, when they get when they get into Australia. So it, it's a real it's a real challenge that we also say uh, needs to be addressed by the federal government. There needs to be some genuine compliance and regulatory measures put in place that that mean that people who are taking, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars from migrant workers for their visa services or for their migration services, are genuinely providing services that are of high quality and, and that they are accountable and that there are, um, there are sanctions if they, if they act improperly. Yeah, absolutely. And knowing that, you know, as you've mentioned before, all work is skilled work, um, but, you know, to avoid, I don't know, leaning into the myth of meritocracy, it's, you know, you're, you're still working unbelievably hard and for it to not be recognised is so, I'm sure, really, really disappointing. And also in countries where it's so highly competitive um, and to come here and, yeah, to not have the chance to do something that you are really passionate about can be really, really disheartening. Um, and then... One thing that also has really stood out to me in the report was that safety hazards actually really um, safety hazards really arise from many factors, but mainly including you know an abusive working environment. Could you talk to us more about how an abusive working environment can have an effect, you know, on migrant workers, but mainly how workers are put into unsafe working situations? 
due yeah. to those bosses. Yeah, look, I mean, we, we're seeing this increasingly coming through the centre too with people presenting from with psychosocial injuries from work. Um, and of the the people that we surveyed, more than half, I think it was 58%, came back and said that they'd experienced um, discrimination in the workplace uh, and, you know, very high numbers of verbal abuse and, and, and bullying as well. And you can only imagine just how much racism is out there. And there are a couple of stories this week as a part of this report about the, the racism that um, that people are experiencing in the industry, such as the care industry. Um, and, you know, it's not just those types of psychosocial uh, issues. We're, uh, we're still seeing high numbers of physical injuries. Um, and part of this is because the employer, in many cases on these temporary visas, is the sponsor of the, of the, the worker, or the worker is desperate, not desperate, the worker is very eager to... Um, to keep their employment because they need that as part of their permanent settlement pathway. So it creates this disincentive to report unsafe issues in the work or uh, unsafe practices or um, or wage exploitation in the workplace because my, many migrant workers are, are faced with this really difficult choice of, you know, defending and exerting their industrial rights or maintaining their... Um, maintaining their employment for the purposes of their residency pathway. So, again, it, it comes down to... And the, the report shows, I think, quite clearly that there's a direct link between not just temporary or permanent visas and... Um, uh, the, the link between temporary visas and uh, issues of un, unsafety at work, but also issues of wage theft uh, at work. And... <laughs> Also, the very stark difference between having an insecure, casual job and the benefits of having a permanent job when it comes to um, the feeling of safety at work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it goes back to the report's name, is that this is insecure specifically by design and racism is embedded into the visa and migration system. And I think to, you know, try to look forward, I know that we've been speaking a lot about what is happening, how precarious this working environment is, how unsafe, how abusive. Can we talk about what are some of the policy recommendations that have come out of this report and what you're you're hoping to to see in terms of change? Yeah, so you know, heading back to the the top, I guess, it's the the real need to ban discrimination on the basis of visa status to, to create a protected class in that in that legislation. The other is an extension of what we've been calling for in our other reports and our other submissions about whistleblower protections and um, improved pathways to permanency for people who wish to settle here and build their lives and uh, in, increasing the amount of uh, availability of information and, and rights inductions for, for incoming temporary migrant workers is um, also a really a really important thing to, to come out of this. So um, biggest takeaway, though, is there's a, obviously a really big report, a, a review coming out that will go to government um, this year about the, the visa system. And there's a real opportunity now for a root and branch reform. Um, and it's really key that people out there that, that think these issues are important um, continue to... Um, elevate them in the public conversation to ensure that the the government in Canberra acts on on these types of on these types of recommendations. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Matt. I know that we speak about similar issues on 3CR and in interviews together, but um you know with each report there is 
hopefully more and more um, information and chance to be heard and hopefully some more and more change to come out of it as well. So thank you for coming on today and hope you have a great day. Thanks for having me. See ya. PX Fano is a Pacifica LGBTIQ plus podcast providing a platform for Pacifica communities to unpack and discuss the narratives and the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Presented by Pacific X, a collective that celebrates Pacific Island LGBTIQA plus communities and meaningful connections that honours cultural and gender identities. You can catch the podcast series on your favourite podcast platform. Supported by 3CR and funded by the Victorian Government Multicultural Communications Outreach Programme. For more information and to hear our podcast episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash PXFANA, spelt P-X-W-H-A-N-A-U. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Wa carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldem Chogo Edwards, for Balamwa, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing Hey, this is Inez from Thursday Brekkie, and I just want to pop on here before we play the interview with John Lawrence to say that while we spoke about some of the problems that are exacerbating the issues against First Nations people across the NT and the majority of kids that are held in remand in Dondale, such as the ongoing impacts of colonisation, the design of the legal system, negative stereotypes, carceral practices, we wanted to include some more about what we can do to support the closure of Dondale and related issues. And we know that many of the listeners at 3CR are active and passionate listeners. So we've included some links in the show notes if you want to learn more about what's happening in Dondale, how we can be more informed and what we can do. Thank you. Now on to the interview. For our last interview today, we are joined by John B. Lawrence, who is a Darwin solicitor, and he's a Crown Prosecutor in Darwin and later solicitor in charge of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service. He's the past president of the Northern Bar Association and of Criminal Lawyers Association of Northern Territory. He also represented one of the Dondale youth detainees during the Royal Commission and joins us today to speak about his article in Arena, What the Meaning of Dondale Is. This interview may contain distressing content about youth who are criminalised and detained, so feel free to skip this interview and we'll see you next time. But if you do need further support, please call Lifeline on 131114, that's 131114, or 13 Yarn for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Thanks so much for joining us here today, John. Good morning, Inez. Yeah, pleased to be here. Oh, thank you. 
Could you tell our listeners, you know, a little bit more about the work that you do and why you wanted to write the article on Arena, you know, that, that's called What the Meaning of Dundale Is? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm a lawyer. I'm actually a barrister uh, in Darwin, and I have been for 35 years. I've lived in Australia for 40 years, as you can hear. I'm from north of here. I'm Scottish. Uh, and I was in my 20s when I came over here originally on a holiday, and I met my wife and changed everything, and I remained in Australia. So I have no Australian antecedents at all. Uh, I'm from a place called Edinburgh, Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, and I've worked uh, initially as a prosecutor, then I was headed up the Aboriginal Legal Service, and I've been a private barrister for about 30 years. And as you said, I've been president of the Bar Association up here. Criminal Lawyers Association, a director of the Australian Law Council, and I'm appointed AC about 11 years ago. So that's the kind of work. And I, so I do private barristerial work, mostly in court and criminal law, but I've always had an interest in representing Aboriginal people because I've always had an interest in justice. So I still do a lot of uh, pro bono work uh, for various individuals and Aboriginal organisations. And I've written lots of articles. Uh, one of which is what you just referred to, the latest one in arena. Now, enough about me. Yep, so I know that, you know, when we're talking about Dondale, um, and Dondale mm. is, you know, so clearly an atrocity against First Nations children, the majority of which are being held in remand, you know, some as young as 10 years old in unlawful and barbaric conditions. And, you know, in September 2018, when the kids tried to burn Dundell down, it did produce a development in the anti-justice, you know, quote-unquote justice system in the last 20 years. But, you know, the move to close Dundell still continues. And given your extensive legal experience, what do you think has, you know, helped Dundell still continue, even though it is such an abuse of power and is so damaging? Well, the, the thrust of my article, which is rather long, I'm afraid, is really describing a 30-year decline in Australian individuals and specifically their lack of care, a sort of care deficit, which has happened across the Western world. So as individuals and as a nation and as a community in the Territory and here in Melbourne, uh, I don't think people care enough about other people, So, which which allows atrocities like Don Dale, which would have been unheard of 30 years ago, uh, to continue. I mean, you get a lot of people that will say, oh, that's terrible, I disagree with that, they should stop it. But then they don't do anything about it. And I think that's an important feature of contemporary Australia. Uh, people are stuck in their own silos for whatever reason, and it includes basically a lack of compassion and care for others. We've become all very, very individualistic, which is a feature of our contemporary society. The point I made about 2018, the, the kids uh, tried to burn the joint down, having studied it and been involved in it for 30 years and watched it regress to this level, um, I'm quite sincere and genuine as a senior lawman in saying that that actual act of direct destructive action is the most positive thing that's happened to juvenile justice in the Northern Territory, because everything that prefaced it has been regressive. And what it illustrates, in my opinion now, is that there is no alternative for anybody who wants this continuous disaster to continue in its trajectory 
and wants things to improve. There's only one way of doing it, and it's exactly what those kids do, did through their courage, which is direct action. So I'm a, a great believer now, having been a participant in the legal system and using legal solutions and remedies. But to me now, there's only one option available that has any prospect of achieving anything worthwhile, and that is people getting out for seats and getting onto the streets and doing things, whatever that may be, how small it might be, people have to act. Yes, people definitely do have to act. And I know that it's touched in your article how, you know, I think there is something to be said that neoliberalism has definitely diminished, you know, a certain level of connection um, and how a lot of that is also, you know, built into our systems. And I also wanted to ask, you know, so much of um, so much of so much of our systems, legal or otherwise, are you know really based upon really negative and damaging stereotypes, particularly of First Nations people and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has a huge impact on the lives of these children. And yeah. I wanted to ask you how you think you know these really negative, damaging stereotypes across media infiltrate the legal system or you know is it just just built into it well the stereotyping is just a a, a current feature of what australia has been since the get-go as in 1788 which has been a racist colony which was originally in the originally believed apparently there was no first nations people here when they got here they realized there were a lot So the idea of terra nullius had to be reframed. So instead of nobody being here, the people that were here were useless and inhuman and subhuman and worth nothing. Now, that attitude, although the High Court of Australia said legally it was a mistake, albeit 200 years later, that attitude still is riddled throughout this country. I mean, you've got to remember, I don't come from here. I'm a white man from Scotland with a industrial, classic Scottish industrial working class upbringing. And I have no traces of anything to do with this country's history other than when I landed in 1980. So this stereotyping is just a continuum of racism which this country sits on and continues to prosecute. Basically, Indigenous kids now, just like their parents and their parents' parents, all of whom I've known and represented, over the 35 years I've been here, they're basically told that they're unwelcome in this country. They don't belong in this country, just like their mothers and fathers. The premise in Australia is that First Nation children, people, have basically no place in it. That's how this country's run. And unless you saddle up like the white fella and become Stan Grant or someone like that, then there's no future for you. Yeah, and, and it's manifested up here by, and again, remember the 30-year decline in education. The, the, the Indigenous kids up here receive crap education, and education is inferior to what they received 30 years ago. The health system is inferior to 30 years ago. Their health situation is as bad as it's always been. Their education is worse. The legal system is worse. The incarceration levels are worse. The suicides are up. The depression's up. The whole thing is going downhill. And it's really a continuum, in my opinion, of just colonialism and treating Aboriginal people in a disgraceful way. And so, you know, that's that's how I see it. Yep, 100%. I think it definitely is, 
you know, a complete failure. You look at the closing the gap figures and the incarceration oh. figures and yeah, yeah a whole set education. Um, but a lot of the ways, like, as you mentioned, if it is built upon this foundation um, and it doesn't cease to change, what is, worse. yeah, what Getting is going worse. to be left of the equity and the well-being of First Nations children, particularly in the Northern Territory. And I know that, you know, the article and a lot of the things that we talk about with Dondale are the complete atrocities. But I think for the last question, could you tell us how, you know, what, what, what we can do differently in terms of like locally in legislation to really support improving these conditions, all but right, most right. importantly, in the ways that the First Nations people actually want them? All right. Well, Luke, don't ask that question. It's a predictable media question. Like, it's a typical, dare I say it, Western question. As in, we have a problem. What's the solution? Okay. Is it a tablet I can take? You know, is it a bullet, a silver bullet that we can fix this? What we need to do is analyse this, scrutinise it, expose it, and make everybody in this country aware, aware of the real history of this country, with a hope that it might turn their hearts and minds around. Now, as far as, again, solutions or whatever, there ain't no solution. We need to change our attitude and stop the rot and improve things. That's as good as we can do. And always remember, Frederick Douglass, the great anti-slavery campaigner in America told us, and it's almost, it's almost a trite thing, power will never relinquish but by a struggle. And the English philosopher Grace tells us conflict rather than discussion is the basis of social change. So that brings in, let's say, the voice. Let's talk about what's happening right now. Well, Unfortunately, John, anybody... um, we are running out of time. I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm, well, whatever. But, I, I mean, again, I go back to my original point, which is the discussion, etc., is not on. People have to arm up and get out there and start struggling and start taking civil disobedience. That's that's my that's my uh, my opinion. That's okay. all it is, just my opinion. All right, no worries. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, John. Um, uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You've just heard from John B. Lawrence, who is a Darwin barrister. He is a Crown Prosecutor in Darwin and later solicitor in charge of the Northern Australian Aboriginal Legal Aid Service. He represented one of the Dundale youth detainees during the Royal Commission and joins us today to speak about his article um, in the arena. Now, this interview may have contained distressing content about youth who are criminalised and detained, so feel free to skip this interview and we'll see you next time. Um, uh, if you do need further support, please call Lifeline on 131114 or 13 Yarn for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Can I quickly say something before we leave? Absolutely. Um, I think the question that you asked was an excellent question. It's a valid question. And solutions, I think it depends on what you mean by solutions. I think changing your attitude, as John said, that's a solution. Um, going out on the street and 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 um, protesting and resisting and taking arms if if it needs to be that is a solution so when you did ask that question those are the answers that you were looking for and those are the answers that he gave um yeah just adding my little two cents no worries. Thanks so much, Ayan. Um, I know that we only have about a minute or so left, um, so we might just quickly go through what we have spoken about today. 
So first we heard an excerpt from the Woman of the Line episode um, by Zen Nia that spoke about sex work and you know artistry in Honolulu and also about you know different sex workers, so strippers, dancers, cam models, sugar babies. And then we heard from... Oh, sorry, we're back. We heard from Irvi Majumma. Uh, about her personal comedy journey and also the Footscray Laughs program, which happens um, one Friday in the next months of the year. Yeah, and then we heard from a Harry Millwood guest appearance on Radical Australia about fast food, uh, retail and health workers and protections as well. And then we heard from Matt Kunkel, who is the CEO of the Migrant Workers Centre, about the latest uh, report from the centre, which is called Insecure by Design, which outlines Australia's migration system, the job market experience, and how visa discrimination and migrant workers, um, it's really built into the system. And lastly, we were joined by John B. Lawrence, who is a prosecutor, uh, a Crown prosecutor and a Darwin barrister about Don Dale Youth uh, Prison as well. So thank you so much for joining us here today on 3CR Thursday Breakfast. Hope you have a lovely day and it is currently 8.30.